Hey, this is the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Today, a chat with Canada's favorite climatologist, a look at the new geologic epoch humans have engineered, a First Nations community named Garden Hill that's living up to its name, and direct-to-consumer genome testing. It's just a spit away. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Here's a riddle. When are children not children? Look for an answer in Washington, D.C., where legislators have just cobbled together a deal to keep government operations running, and kids are bargaining chips. Among several key bones of contention, continued funding for the Child Health Insurance Program, CHIP for short. CHIP covers medical costs for 9 million kids whose parents don't qualify for Medicaid but still can't afford private health care. Federal funding for CHIP ran out last fall. When the U.S. Congress failed to act, states turned to unspent funds to keep CHIP running. Those funds ran out in mid-January. At that point, real children, not poker chips, were about to get cashed in. Fast forward to midnight January 19th. The U.S. government had run out of money and was about to shut down. Democrats were going mano a mano with Republicans over the Deferred Action Childhood Program, DACA, the Obama administration's policy allowing a million undocumented immigrant kids, those so-called dreamers, to stay in the country. Out of their back pockets, Republicans pulled out CHIP. Want to keep it? Republicans asked. Then vote to deport the dreamers. Democrats surprised the family values crowd by refusing to swap. The ensuing government shutdown lasted two days. Then, America's wise legislators cobbled together a deal to keep the republic going for three weeks. Chip got a fresh lease on life for six years. On February 8th, the poker game begins again. So, when are children not children? When they become poker chips. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. shall get them that's not shall lose so the bible said and it still is new mama may have papa may have but god bless the child that's got his own that's got his own ones fade empty pockets don't ever make the grave mama may have papa may have but god bless the child that's got his own that's got his own money you 
the child. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, America's songwriting Nobel laureate wrote, but an erudite weatherman with great pipes and charm can be a national treasure. David Phillips, senior climatologist at Environment Canada, is one such weatherman. I spoke with David Phillips at his office in North Toronto. When, you know, they get these, um, these young reporters uh, who will have been assigned uh, to, to write a story about, uh, about the weather. And they'll call me up and they'll be so apologetic as if, you know, they're taking my time or that, you know, I've been given the, the short straws and I write the weather. And I'll say, well, congratulations. And they'll often say, well, what do you mean? I says, well, people are going to read you. Weather's what matters to people. It's not scandals in Ottawa. It's 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 the weather from a day to day basis, and they see it in a different different light in a way, you know. And they and all of a sudden their article appears on the front page of the newspaper because the editor thought enough of it, and uh, and uh, and he knows that that's what sells newspapers. That's what the readers want to hear. They want to know about uh, what's out their window, not something in a in a distant uh, a distant way. So. Um, um, but so I, I think that's probably why I, I think weather is such a fascinating topic to all Canadians. And uh, I mean, everybody's interested in weather. I was mm-hmm. I was thinking about this, you know, when I get into taxi cabs, yes. which I get into taxi cabs a lot, and I find myself uh, saying, "So it's pretty crazy weather we're having, isn't it?" Yeah, yeah. And and then I think to myself, "This is kind of so." So hackneyed, you know. I'm getting into a cab and I'm talking with a cab driver right. about the weather, and then of course, and then the conversation starts. Oh, it, it truly. I mean, it is this thing that starts and stops all of our conversations in Canada. I mean, we're known as the weather people, and um, and even I. One of the things I do in a in a volunteer way is I swear in new Canadians. I've been given the opportunity by Citizenship and Immigration Canada to swear in new Canadians. And uh, what uh, teachers have told me of English as a second language, they immediately teach them weather terminology when they're uh, when they're learn, teaching them about English because they recognize that they can then c- 
how to uh, begin a conversation with all Canadians and go into the Tim Hortons or the or the or the um, the, the Canadian Tire stores, and you can just say, "Hey, um, cold out there, or uh, more snow expected," and immediately people engage them and embrace them, and uh, and there's no sort of faraway looks. You know, it's it's uh, whether you're a a mailroom clerk or a chief executive officer, I mean, weather does matter to us. And um, and it is, I often wonder if we're boring because we talk about the weather so much. I mean, it starts and stops all conversations. But, I mean, there's nothing boring about our weather. I mean, that's that's clear. But this is the sort of the feeling that I have. I think, oh, heavens, you know, how, how impoverished to be, to be ter- <laughs> turning to talk about the weather. I should no. be talking about... Uh, but you know, David, it's a safe topic of conversation. There's no guns drawn or marriage breakups when people talk about the weather. I mean, it's something that affects all of us, you know. And uh, and so I, I think it um, – and we all have experiences with the weather. And uh, and so so my sense is that, yes, it might – you know, and I, mean, I remember talking to somebody in, in California. And I said, well, what do people in California talk about? And he thought for a while, and this guy was a promoter, and so he was without words there. And I said, well, is it weather? Weather? We don't even have weather in California. It's traffic. We talk about traffic. And in others, it's relationships or it's religion or it's maybe it's politics. But, hey, um, what you'll find is that most Canadians and uh, will, it'll, be, it'll be weather that is the, 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 the icebreaker. You know, it's the thing that gets us going. And then we can go on to more sensitive topics and uh, depending upon how the person reacts even to your comments about the weather. Is Canada's weather becoming crazier? You know, it's tough for me to. I've been a climatologist for 45 years. Um, I've studied. I've written the book, the, the definitive book on the climates of Canada, um, and I've written many magazine articles on it. It's it's. You know, it takes a lot to convince me that the climate is weird, wild, and wacky now as it as what it was in the past. I do know a couple of things, though. That weather has maybe more importance to us now than it ever has been. And, and you know, there are very fewer Canadians who die from weather now than died 100 years ago. I mean, it used to kill um, 10 times the number of Canadians 100 years ago with a, with a, a tenth of the population. Uh, people were much more fatalistic about the weather. They didn't necessarily pay attention to the safety and, and, and there weren't the forecasts available to people so they could arm themselves and, and prevent the kind of uh, threats. But uh, our, 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 our infrastructure and our society is so much more uh, incredibly complex Yes. That's that when suddenly people in Toronto have to, you know, get out of the go, go train in boats, um, you know, re- rescued from the go train in, in little dinghies or, uh, you know, disaster strikes, flooding in Calgary right, or, you know, right. whatever. Right. Everything, you know, the ice storm in Toronto, yes. we think of our systems and our society as being incredibly robust, but when they crash for a week, Everybody is just incredibly put out. Right. I, I think we are much more vulnerable to the weather now than we've ever been. And I think that was really the big lesson of the ice storm in 98. I mean, that is still the uh, – until the Calgary flood of, uh, of, of 2013, it was the biggest, most destructive, most disruptive storm in Canadian history. And there were 4 million Canadians even to this day who when we mention freezing rain in Montreal and Ottawa, it strikes fear in their hearts because they don't want to have to relive what they did at that time. But what that that 
weather event demonstrated was that we are we we are um, we don't have the backup systems that we are we are actually we've engineered our way to 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 a point where we are more vulnerable to to weather conditions for example it's something as simple as milking cows you know we've had famous ice storms in the past that maybe weren't quite as bad but in this particular ice storm because farmers had huge operations they depended upon electricity when they didn't get it they had to kill their cows because the cows needed to be milked and they couldn't be, whereas their ancestors would have milked the cows or brought in neighbors to, uh, to, to milk the cows and would have. So, you know, we have to get from point A to point B, do you see? Now we have to pick up the kids at daycare. We have to go to bridge club meetings. That uh, We travel great distances, but we really, in many ways, are, are, are more vulnerable to, to weather conditions now than, uh, than our ancestors. And, uh, and yet they didn't have the safety nets that they have. we have now uh, in terms of uh, we demand more of people. I mean, it used to be when I was gee, a young kid uh, uh, playing uh, playing hockey on the streets of my hometown, I mean, you could play on the roads which had lots of snow. But it wasn't necessarily there was more snow at that time. It's just that people rolled the snow. They, they, you drove over it. You didn't plow it. Now if you pay taxes, you want the city, uh, city officials to move every snowflake that falls, you say. And you feel you complain if you don't, you don't get that kind of uh, service. So, so I think in many ways, I think the climate has changed. And I'm, I'm, I like to speak to that. But I think in many ways we've changed you and I and Canadian society and people. There's more wealth. We're living where we shouldn't be living in floodplains and avalanche zones and, and by the sea. I mean, a, hey, a third of the people in the world live within 100 kilometers of the ocean. It's desirable to live by the ocean. But there are greater risks when those water levels, sea levels rise. There's going to be more inundation. If you're not protected, you're going to see more, more of the fallout, the negative fallout from, from, from that kind of thing. But uh, extreme weather events, are they becoming more common in Canada? Well, um, I think there is, there is some indication that we are seeing more extremes, but it depends upon, um, you know, which extremes you're talking about. I mean, it, it's a tough nut to crack. I mean, to, think, to say that we're warmer, and there's no question that Canada is a warmer country. We've looked at them everywhere, and particularly our winters. The one season that we're famous for is the one that has warmed up the most. And in many ways, we're not the great white north that we used to used to be. I mean, uh, people still think we are, but my gosh, winters aren't quite as, in spite of this winter, aren't quite as tough. Uh, snowfall totals have changed, and the ice conditions, I mean, something building ice door, ice uh, backyard ice rinks in Canada. They're not as possible now as they used to be when some of the famous hockey players were, uh, were learning how to skate and, uh, and, and play, uh, play hockey. So we clearly know that every time, you know, we we uh, break a temperature record, a high temperature record, for two for every cold record we break. So we clearly know there's some elements of the climate that has changed. The problem in terms of looking at extremes, you know, the powerful storms, the, the twisty tornadoes, the, uh, um, the, the floodier floods, uh, these kinds of events, I, I think that they don't occur as often as taking temperature records. So the, the observational records are not as, as clear on these as they have been in the past. Let, let me give you an example. For example. You know, somebody would say to me, well, what, have we seen more thunderstorms now than in the past? Well, um, how, what is a thunderstorm? A thunderstorm is when you hear thunder. 
Well, it used to be in the weather office back in the, you know, 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s when they had that noisy teletype uh, that would bring you the weather from far away and how you would send out the weather to newspapers and what have you and other weather services, you sometimes couldn't hear the thunder. So when we took the teletype out of the weather office, my gosh, um, the number of thunderstorms went up, do you say, because you could now hear it, do you say. So that's the kind of thing, when you look at the data, the data are not necessarily in the best shape to be able to answer that question, are we seeing that more? Satellites, I mean, the oceans can't burp without us knowing about it now. But we, precipitation we, events, surely that's a pretty simple uh, parameter well, to measure, you know, how many, uh, you know, your average rainstorm, how many millimeters of, of rain come down? Sure. No, it, no question. Um, I mean, there is the number of... Anything's going to happen as, as the, the mean surface temperature rises, is great, the acceleration of water. Cycle. Yes. So. Well, we certainly do see the precipitation climatology has changed. We see in some areas we're seeing more snow in the high Arctic because there's more there's warmer temperatures, more uh, water vapor. So you have the more of the, the ingredients that produce the snow. Where we're seeing maybe less snow in the southern part of Canada because the winter season is a little shorter. Some of those snow events are now becoming rain events, you say. So when you look at the data in terms of the amount of precipitation, yes, we do seem to be seeing in some parts of the world, uh, when it rains, it rains in a heavier dose, no question. But if it's the big ones you're talking about, it's the big rainfalls in Calgary or in Toronto, these are still not enough of those to be able to be able to say categorically that yes we are seeing more of these there is certainly a hint that we are we know that physically we should i mean when you warm up the world you get more evaporation you have more moisture that's held by the warmer air i mean for every degree of warming there's seven percent more atmospheric moisture so it's the stuff that produces the the gully washer so that you clearly think the potential is there but I think the, the observational record and the kind of changes that we've seen are fairly recent that, you know, we haven't been able to determine with the kind of confidence that scientists need to be able to say that without, without people challenging it. There's certain aspects of the weather that have clearly changed. There's no question about the temperature records. There's no, there's no doubt about it. But in terms of flooding rains or, you know, stronger hurricanes or um, droughty or droughts, there's some of these are, are in question, and it depends upon where you look, for example, that whether you could um, uh, see any of those things uh, that are more now than they were back. See, see, the interesting thing, I think a lot of people, you know, invariably go, like, well, this winter was so cold. So much for global warming. Oh, exactly. That bothers me to no end. I mean, it is... You see it all the time, and the media love to to push that out. You know the fact that, and then and and you know it it says nothing. I said, you know, and you look out the window, you don't see climate, you just see weather. You say, and yet weather and climate are connected. You say, I mean, you can't have. I often say, you know, if you change the climate, you're going to change the weather. So what's the difference between weather and climate? Okay. Quickly, 
climate is is what you'd call we used to call climate as dead weather or as a past weather or average weather I, I think it was the greatest slur you could ever wish upon a climatologist to call um, uh, climate average weather because we know that weather is rarely is it average I mean it, there's all nuances of extremes and variability and and weather. it's the whole aspect of it so I mean I, I suppose the, the simplest way I could describe the the, the difference is that you know, climate is what you expect and weather is what you get, you know, that kind. Or we wear, we buy clothes because of the climate, we wear them because of the, of the weather, do you and, think? And weather is, weather is local, climate is... Uh... Well, I mean, climate is, it tends to be measured in time periods of decades to half centuries to centuries, where weather is out your window. It's, it's the comings and goings it's of, of, the, of the weather from a, from a day-to-day basis. So when you hear these comments about, well, the fact that, oh, my gosh, whatever happened to global warming, or must have been a lot of hot air because we're seeing one of the coldest winters in... Uh, it's nothing to do with that. The fact that you're always going to have these wild cards. You're always going to have... There's the variability. Is this One of the toughest things about understanding the climate of uh, and the change in climate is the natural variability of the, of the subject. That you can't rule out um, uh, something that you'd think, well, the ice age is cometh. And, um, and there's a lot of things that create the weather, do you say? It's, it's sun, it's sun activities, it's the oceans, it's, uh, it's Earth's uh, ge- uh, geometric kind of uh, tilts, it's people. People. I mean, this is the new wrinkle. I mean, people never thought of the fact that people would uh, uh, would uh, had we're uh, you know competing with the sun in terms of changing the the climate. But I often say to people, well, just think about a city. People don't deny that cities are different than suburban and rural areas. And one of the the differences in terms of the weather and the climate is because people, uh, cars and buildings and pavement and building materials and and what have you. I mean, I think one of the the things that I've been talking about uh, in in many uh, recent years is the fact that um, uh, that our, our cities have changed dramatically and it's, it's affecting the response of, of weather in the past. I mean, let me give you an example here in Toronto. Uh, uh, one of the biggest storms ever in Toronto was Hurricane Hazel back in 1954. It killed 81 people. It's still, people still talk about it. It's the, probably the most tragic weather event in, in, in Toronto's history. And, uh, but Toronto was a different city back then. It had, you know, uh, maybe a, a fifth of the population. The roads were much narrower. There was much more grass and, and and, uh, parkland than there would be now. Now you have 50% of, of Toronto is impervious to, to raindrops. Every time the raindrop falls, it doesn't matter how dry the city is, it becomes a flood drop, you say. So by our, by our actions... Same in Calgary. Exactly, Same exactly. In 50% of cities, it doesn't matter how large city is and we uh, and we need to do something about that i mean there's nothing i mean parks and grasslands and and things like this are very uh, very important in terms of of weatherproofing cities so we have this zeal to to blacktop and asphalt uh, uh, the cities this storm that we had in toronto this uh, in july of um, of of 2013 uh, was the the most uh, damaging storm in Toronto's history. Um, it probably a billion dollars in, in losses. And it probably, it was almost like nature was saying the most vulnerable part of Canada, the most built up, the most asphalted building material uh, place in all of, uh, of uh, Canada, it rained. 
And if it had rained uh, a few kilometers to the north, it wouldn't have had nearly the impact. But when that rain fell, and there was a lot of rain in a short period of time, it fell on, on roads and, and buildings, materials, and rooftops, and the water became, that raindrop became a flood drop, and you saw the impact that it had on the, uh, on the city. It didn't kill anybody, but it cost a billion dollars in losses, and people's lives were upset. They were absolutely feared that they were going to, I mean, we had rivers that be, or streets that became canals, and uh, an incredible effect on the transportation system, and hydro, and, uh, and, and really was... Uh, and flooded basements, and it was just showed you. You can't engineer your way from Mother Nature. It really has the holds the, the trump cards in, uh, in these. David Phillips is Senior Climatologist at Environment Canada. You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Robert Johnson's old friend and road buddy Johnny Shines recalled watching Johnson sing this song for a room full of people. When Johnson was through, everyone was in tears. 
Come On In My Kitchen, Robert Johnson, recorded in San Antonio, Texas, on November 23, 1936. Human beings are an industrious species. As their population nears 8 billion, Homo sapiens, sapiens means wise, has transformed the physical structure and composition of Earth's surface, and geologists are proposing that a brand new geologic epoch be named after us, the Anthropocene. Green Blues show contributor Sarah Aronson spoke with me about the Anthropocene. Unlike the last 12,000 years of human history, which have been called the Holocene, this new era is characterized by human influence so decisive that we are changing our planet. And we've actually left a stratum in, in, in the rock and in the sediments. Tell me about this. For sure, yeah. We have actually spread human-made materials all over the planet. So, for example, concrete, plastic, black carbon, ash, chemicals like polyaromatic hydrocarbons, PCBs, pesticide residues, lead, industrial metals, and rare earth elements. And radioactivity. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, from radioactive, uh, from basically nuclear weapons tests starting in the 40s and 50s, there are actually isotopes in the ground that are not going to be, uh, they're going to be giving a signature off for 100,000 years. And, I mean, it's amazing, not surprising, vast amounts of plastic. Oh yeah. Aluminum. Oh yeah, vast amounts of that. As well, we have a huge amount of nitrogen and, and phosphorus. The, the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus in the soil has doubled. From in, agriculture. From agriculture in the last hundred years. As well, we're looking at, if you look at the ice, uh, ice cores that are taken from places like Antarctica, Greenland, you're seeing increases in carbon dioxide, you're seeing increases in methane that are huge. As well, uh, we, we also have sea level rises, and you can, look, you can actually look at the sediments and tell when sea levels are rising rapidly. And we have a temperature increase of between 0.6 and 0.9 degrees Celsius from 1906 to 2005. As well, we have increased rates of extinction of species and the movement of species all over this planet. Is this controversial, Sarah, for scientists to be coming forward with a, a new term for a geological epoch that humans have heralded in? Is this a source of uh, debate? Oh yeah, it's definitely a source of debate, Dave. It's not the science that's under debate, the fact that we have made all these changes, and I think that's the most powerful aspect of this article, that it really does show that, that the, the science does demonstrate we've made this decisive change. But when it comes to the name of this new era, the Anthropocene, there is quite a bit of debate, and that's because the word Anthropocene basically means the age of man. And it's talking about the human species. So there's this sort of implication that it's something in the nature of human beings that have caused these changes. First, we were able to create fire, therefore the fossil fuel economy just naturally followed. And so it's not clear what the political implications of this particular term are. And so the idea is that it's, it's not the human species that's really responsible for this. It's, it's modern capitalism, it's industrialism, which really only a tiny, tiny fraction of the population on earth has had any responsibility in driving is this is this the idea well yeah that's the idea like scientists don't have a background in sociology or economics or history or politics so they don't understand in the last few hundred years the dynamics of the capitalist economy and how it works and how a small elite has basically been responsible for these technological changes so why should this matter i mean if human beings have indeed transformed the surface of the planet 
I mean, why do politics and economics matter? Perhaps we should just be doing something about it. Well, the problem is, depending on how you name the problem, you're going to get a different solution. For example, the term Anthropocene has been adopted by people in a wide range of, coming from a wide range of backgrounds with a wide range of goals. The person who first first coined the term, Paul Crutzen, in 2002, his article said that because human beings have this tremendous capacity to transform the planet, that means we're super powerful, and this is now basically the era of human dominion over Earth, and we are now responsible for using our technology to fix what our technology has caused. Geoengineering. Exactly. So that would be an incredible <laughs> irony that the realization that we've transformed the surface would actually provide momentum to continuing to do it. Exactly. I mean, now the corporations can go and fund these giant projects and make even more money off whatever they're doing, putting mirrors on the planet to uh, put, um, put solar energy back into space or whatever they do. So there's no, there's no political critique in this. It's hard for an environmentalist to sink their teeth into this. And people have even suggested, well, why are we calling it the Anthropocene? Why don't we call it like the capitalist scene or something, something like that? Because we're not really putting our finger on the cause, the, 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 the proximate historical cause of this phenomenon. So have you encountered in your reading, Sarah, any ideas coming from the, the progressive environmental community suggesting a way that we could parlay this into something useful? Like, how could this change the way we behave in a positive way? Uh, I'm afraid I really haven't seen anything specific in, in the environmental press. I haven't, I've been reading more of the mainstream press, and the mainstream press seems to think this is a great advance. They're saying welcome to the Anthropocene. The mainstream press is saying welcome to the Anthropocene. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's hilarious. <laughs> and why? Well, why should people be thinking such a thing? Well, I think it's good in one way, because it goes against people who would deny that there is such human-driven change to our Earth system, and it shows that it's not just global warming that's the problem, that there's like a, a whole package of things that go along with it. So to say it really says, wow, there has been a huge difference, and wow, things are just not like they used to be. Like our grandparents did not have the concrete in the world that we do. And, and that is a tremendous thing to acknowledge. And it, it relates to your theme of the rapid pace of change. The fact is that half the concrete on this planet was placed in the last 20 years. Plastics were only invented in the early 20th century. If you look at the increase in production of concrete, plastic, aluminum, you have these sharp curves starting in the mid 20th century. And so I think what's important about this term is it just gets people to think, wow, the change has been so rapid. But I'm concerned that a bunch of scientists without that geopolitical economic background are the ones that are tasked with the, the, the responsibility of naming this new era. Sarah Aronson is a Winnipeg writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Don't let them drop that bomb on me. A call for sanity from Charlie Mingus, recorded by Alexis Corner and his Blues Incorporated back in 1965. Of all the challenges facing remote communities across northern Canada, none is as pivotal as food security. In those that can only be reached by air, groceries are expensive and healthy options limited. Garden Hill a First Nations community in northern Manitoba, has come up with a food security project befitting its name. Garden Hill's Meacham Farm has been raising its own chickens and turkeys and growing its own food. Uh, my name is Larry Wood. I, I manage the Meacham Incorporated. And Meacham is... Me- Meacham is, means food. And uh, part of uh, gardening and chicken raising and uh, uh, food market. We, we hold uh, tw- twice a month. And it's a social enterprise. Mm-hmm. Which it's means a, what? What is a social enterprise? A social uh, enterprise is <clears throat> um, where we uh, generate employment and uh, try to um, uh, sell, produce our own food at a reasonable cost. And do you make money? Uh, just a, a little, little bit of profit. Just a little bit, not uh, not much. Sometimes we lose money on uh, uh, on some of the projects because we're just getting established. So. And it just started. In uh, just, the spring. Uh, just started the spring, yeah. And we had our markets uh, started uh, probably in uh, February, so we have it uh, twice a month. Where? At uh, at our. Uh, Garden Hill Arena, that's where we have our food market. The next one will be on the 18th or the 20th of this month, and then again end of the month. So this is a change from the past, having a local market, social enterprise uh, that produces it, food. It's not that uh, we had uh, uh, the people come and sell their food here. I mean, uh, uh, come and do the market here as well, but they sell the uh, uh, chips and drinks and uh, whatnot, uh, as well uh, as well uh, meat, meat sales. That's the supermarket. Uh, something I got, yeah. That's the the northern. The northern. Uh, we have uh, somebody that comes in from the city that does uh, the market here. That's I think that's the reason why there it was called uh, Garden Hill because everybody everybody uh, had gardens. Uh, I remember my grandfather had uh, his garden, and all of our neighbors had uh, their own garden. And do a lot of people have gardens today? Uh, For, uh, I think, uh, not everybody, not not everybody has gardens, like only a few people. Uh, I I, I, I think uh, the, 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 the teaching wasn't passed on. So uh, when we started the gardening, uh, everybody kind of uh, started from scratch. So learning how to uh, uh, prepare the ground, plant, harvest uh, these things, how to how to uh, store their uh, 
their vegetables, what they grow, stuff like that. Uh, we didn't uh, have the knowledge because, uh, like I said, it wasn't passed on. The, the teaching wasn't passed on, or the, the. And why? Because people became more dependent on food in the uh, grocery store. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And the younger generation went away to school. I think uh, that's part of the reason, because of the residence of school that came and uh, took uh, all the kids uh, to school. I think that's a reason. Part of the reason. So the residential school experience, that whole history, had an impact on people's uh, uh, nutrition. Uh, yeah, everything uh, that happens in our community, you know, it has to. Everything, uh, I think, um, it impacted everything. The way our, the way of life that we. Okay, we ready to go. Let's make it right. <laughs> yeah, I think it impacted everything. The residential school. They should teach kids in school how to how to grow food. Yeah, yeah that's one of the things that we, we should uh, uh, talk about to the, the to, to the education. You know uh, how to uh, garden. That will be, uh, I think it will benefit uh, our community and uh, food food security. Like we need to have our own food, produce our own food. And there's all sorts of things that grow in the in the woods that that are edible, mm -hmm. that, are, that are good. Like, I don't know, raspberries, strawberries, blueberries. What else? What else do you uh, find that you could eat? Saskatoon. Saskatoon. See, Saskatoon berries. Huh? So the state of nutrition in uh, in uh, in Garden Hill. It's it's not uh, terribly good. It's not that terribly good because of um, the high cost of uh, everything in our community. You even if you want to go get your own food off the land, you still need uh, gas. You still need equipment. When we do buy fish here, it's still uh, buy locally. You still gotta uh, spend uh, lots of money. Like if you're buying a whole fish. Uh, you're probably spending about five to ten dollars a fish, whole. So that's how much you're paying. In order, if you're gonna go get uh, your own, then uh, you got to get your own equipment. You gotta get your own, either a fishing rod or a net or a boat and motor and gas and oil. It adds up. Isn't it strange how it's it's cheaper to eat garbage food than it is yeah. to eat healthy food? It, it is really uh, cheaper than buying uh, healthy foods. That's why we started uh, uh, the food market uh, is because of uh, the high cost of food. And who's we? Uh, the medium incorporated. Uh, we started uh, the, the, that program to um, help the community uh, help uh, have more accessible healthy foods and uh, for, like, uh, for instance uh, all our uh, fruits and vegetables our fruit and vegetables are basically a dollar a piece a dollar banana a dollar an apple a dollar uh, an orange or a dollar uh, uh, an onion or tomatoes uh, we, even though we're not making any money on those so then it helps it helps quite a bit uh, for the uh, customer 
it's like <clears throat> going to the store if you're going to buy a uh, uh, a bottle of drink, uh, a can of drink. It's a uh, two bucks. But if you uh, get it here on this side, it's a dollar fifty. One twenty-five. So a bag of chips is about a dollar, eh? Yeah, small bag. A small bag of chips and stuff. But it's really so we're trying to uh, uh, offset, uh, trying to be the same price as uh, the junk food. That way, it's more. It's, they have more nutritious uh, option instead of buying junk food. And people are used to, even in the South, if you get go to the checkout counter and you look at the food that people are buying, a lot of people just buy junk. Uh, yeah, like the Things in cans, things in boxes. Yeah, with our community, it's, it's always been... Uh, our community has a high rate of uh, diabetes, chronic diseases. And so um, we try to uh, teach them. I teach, uh, provide education, awareness uh, regarding healthy foods, traditional foods. It's, I think it's part of teaching uh, to the community uh, how to eat. And it's hard to do because they're already uh, accustomed to eating the, that type of food. So we, uh, <coughs> we're battling a uphill battle. So and, and 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 the junk food—it's all—it's food that's got a lot of salt and salt, sugar yeah, exactly, in it. Exactly. Yeah. People like salt and sugar. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. I think uh, we do. Uh, so how do you how do you get them to uh, move towards a diet that's not stuff in cans and boxes, but stuff that's that's fresh produce? And then I guess the first thing is to be able to provide it cheaper. Not uh, provide cheaper in education, and we try to do both. Learn more about Garden Hills Meacham Farm Project at greenplanetmonitor.net. You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg.
Scotty's Blues, Stefan Grossman. Ever wonder what secrets lurk within your personal genetic code? What percentage of your genome is Neanderthal? Perhaps you're the proud owner of a sports endurance gene. Hopefully, no skeletons in the closet like the gene-linked Alzheimer's disease. Would you want to know? These are the sorts of questions direct-to-consumer genome kits can offer. Listen to this. So it's just a small blade um, that's made out of compressed cotton, I believe. Daryl Cole sits in his Winnipeg living room, describing his plunge into direct-to-consumer genetic testing. So I just take it and I scrape the inside of my cheek, which gives them a DNA sample. Cole wasn't fretting over genes that might kill him. Family roots intrigued him the most. He slipped his cheek swab into a tube and popped it in the mail. A few weeks later, an update landed in his inbox. It's freaky. <laughs> it was a very tingly moment. Finally, the big day arrived. He couldn't believe his eyes. When I got this and it said that you're 2% Neanderthal, it just rocked my world. <laughs> I didn't even know how to react to it. Direct-to-consumer genome testing, it's called. The biggest name in the business is 23andMe. For $99, the California-based firm will send you a plastic tube to drool into. Armed with the latest technology, they'll scan your spit for hundreds of known polymorphisms, subtle mutations that may or may not kill you or make you smart. It was the horrible disease part that irked the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Stick to personal ancestry, the FDA told 23andMe late last year. I decided to get testing because I was teaching this new genetics course, and I thought, oh, perfect, I should get this done. And they were having a sale, too. Rosie Redfield ordered her spit test before the barn door closed. When I pull up 23andMe... Sitting in her office at the University of British Columbia, Rosie Redfield pulls up her genetic rap sheet. Okay, so elevated risk, lupus, celiac disease, bladder cancer. I've got relatively high risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Are, are um, there any Alzheimer's in your family, to your knowledge? No, my family's great. <laughs> no, there's no Alzheimer's in my family at all. Um, and so yet they say you've got a 12.5% risk. 12.5% risk isn't that high. And maybe there's just a lot of other genes in there that counterbalance the particular genes that have been identified. It's easy for Rosie Redfield to shrug off bad genetic news. She teaches the stuff. For those who don't know a genotype from a pair of blue genes, news like this can ruin an entire day. Dr. Roberto Mendoza is a clinical geneticist at the University of Toronto. Most of the tests that are offered right now are based on association studies. But that's not causative. It's not telling you that it is going to happen. And I think that the public has a difficult time in interpreting a risk factor like that. The bottom line for Mendoza, talk to your physician. I don't think that sending a sample by mail and receiving a report without discussion with any healthcare professional provides that type of information. Now, good genetic news is another story. The, uh, the certificate they sent me is quite impressive and has several signatures on it and a very official-looking stamp. Jim Rupert is an associate professor in the School of Kinesiology at the University of British Columbia. A fancy certificate hangs on his wall. 
DNA analysis performed on Jim Rupert has demonstrated a genetic advantage for endurance activity at the actinin-3 locus. Rupert is the proud owner of an endurance gene, but he isn't headed for the Olympics. I mean, one of the things I tell my students is that I, I could test them. It probably wouldn't mean much. But if I went out and tested 50,000 children in Canada, I would probably enrich my camp. That's not what people think when you talk about genetic testing. They assume, well, I can test your kid, and then I can tell you what your kid should be doing. The most credible information from a direct-to-consumer genetic test may be the sort Daryl Cole purchased from the National Geographic's Genographic Project. 30,000 years ago, it looks like my dad's line is starting to get close to my mom's line in terms of um, meeting up, which, you know, as I'm saying that is kind of blowing my mind. Cole has learned something about himself, and he won't have to consult with his doctor. What's beautiful about this, I find, it's just so personally intimate because it's telling me about my DNA makeup. Judging from the popularity of personal ancestry products, most people would rather get in touch with their inner Neanderthal than go scrounging for genetic skeletons in the closet. There's, there's much to explore yet to be determined. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg, and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. Tell everyone you know. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. Join me again next time. Bye-bye.